What's new in science this week? What's new in science this week? Bench talk, the week in science. Bench talk. Bench talk. Bench talk. You are now listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. Bench Talk, the, the week, week in, in science. science. Scott here. The skies of winter provide both beauty and challenge. I get out early in the evening, about six or so, and there are quite a few stars and planets to be seen. I am getting out while dust still remains in the skies in hopes of finding planets, but it's cold outside. So I put on a coat and also think layers. Because it is dark, I can use my own knowledge of the sunset position at my house. I now swing my glance toward the general direction west. In the southwestern sky are a few bright points. Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn, in order of brightness to dimmest, are trying to keep it interesting in the night sky in terms of seeing planets. Adding to the scene will be the moon. On December 6th, a thin crescent moon will just be below Venus. By the next night, it will lie below Saturn. Saturn will have the moon pass it by the nights of December 8th and 9th. So, if one isn't quite sure what are the stars and what are the planets, the moon can be a helpful guide. Constellations are also plentiful, with some having shapes that make them noticeable, if not reminiscent of what they represent. In the western sky is the asterism known as the Summer Triangle. Unlike constellations, which are the official divisions of the night sky, asterisms are simply collections of stars, usually bright ones, that catch our eye because they form a familiar shape. In the case of the Summer Triangle, we see three bright stars making what nearly is an isosceles triangle. Vega is the brightest, and it is closer to the western horizon, marking the northwestern base corner of the triangle. Deneb, a bit dimmer but still quite bright, marks the northeastern base corner. The southernmost star of the three is Altair, marking the tip of the triangle where the two longer legs join from the base. If I keep looking higher up to nearly overhead, a pattern of four stars, all of about the same brightness, catches my eye. This is the great square of Pegasus, another asterism. It marks the body of that flying horse. From the southwestern sky and extending toward the southwest is a check mark of stars that mark the head and neck of Pegasus. From the northwestern star of the Great Square are a pair of lines of stars marking the front legs. And from the northeastern star of the Great Square is another pair of lines of stars marking the back legs. Or does it? That pair of lines of stars is actually the constellation Andromeda. She is a princess chained and sacrificed to a sea monster as punishment for her mother's bragging, specifically about her mother's beauty. Now for a real test of sky darkness. If you can find the great square of Pegasus and properly identify Andromeda sweeping to the northeast from its northeastern corner star, try the following. Start with that northeastern corner star of the Great Square, then travel out to one pair and then a second pair of stars along Andromeda. Each of those stars are about the same brightness. Once you reach that second pair, imagine a line connecting them so that you would be putting a crossbar on the letter A. The dimmest set of stars making up Andromeda do open up in a narrow V-shaped pattern, easily made into an A with a crossbar. 
Now let your eye wander along the crossbar from the bright star to the dim star. Continue that line to a point beyond the dim star about that same length of the crossbar. You may see a fuzzy patch of light there. If you do, you are looking at the Andromeda Galaxy, the closest big galaxy to our own Milky Way. At almost 2.5 million light years away, it marks the farthest object one can see with the naked eye. And as time and distance are interchangeable when we measure distance in light years, that means we see that galaxy the way it looked 2.5 million years ago. This brings us to the eastern sky, where a bright and familiar pattern of stars can be seen rising. By 8 p.m. one might just glimpse the three stars that form the straight line, marking the belt of Orion the Hunter. Orion is a popular figure because of the 88 constellations that break up the sky, it is one of the few that actually looks like its namesake, made of bright stars that mark the shoulders, waist, and knees of this celestial hunter. Later this winter, and on into the spring, Orion will be better placed in our skies. An annual astronomical event to watch for in December skies is the Geminid meteor shower. This shower is to winter what the Perseid meteor shower is to summer, a meteor shower that can be depended on for seeing shooting stars. This shower can produce close to 100 meteors an hour from a dark site, that is, away from city lights, near its peak in the morning hours of December 14th. This year, the moon should not interfere too much, as it will be near first quarter phase and out of the night sky during the hours before sunrise, when the activity should be best. No promises at seeing lots of meteors, but no excuse in not seeing them because of scattered moonlight. December 21st is the day of the winter solstice, the astronomical first day of winter. If you watch the sun rise and set and mark the location along the eastern and western horizons for those rise and set points, you will find they are not always due east or due west. The sunrise point will range from somewhat northeast to southeast and back over the year. Likewise, the sunset point will range somewhat northwest to southwest and back over the year. The maximum points away from due east and due west are the solstices. So December 21st marks the date of the southernmost rise point and southernmost set point as we observe the sun over the course of a year. The sun crosses the sky at its lowest angle above the southern horizon, casting long shadows, but more importantly, not being present above the horizon for long periods. So with no direct sunlight overhead and what sunlight does reach us for a short period of time, cold weather is the result. We have winter. So as this year comes to an end, perhaps December skies can help us forget, if for a short while, some of the shortcomings that made up 2021. Planets, a tempting meteor shower, and more than a few asterisms and constellations. Something that can really help take one's mind off one's troubles and simply enjoy the wonders of the night sky. Boy, there's lots of new things to talk about on the show this week. Well, here's another. It's about the Appalachian Career Training in Oncology program. That's called ACTION. It's coming out of the University of Kentucky. Now, this is a career training program run by the Markey Cancer Center at University of Kentucky, and their aim is to prepare students from the Appalachian regions of Kentucky to pursue careers in oncology. And you might already know this, but Kentucky has more cases of cancer diagnosis 
and more cancer-related deaths than any other state in the country. And the majority of these cases are in the 54 counties that constitute the Appalachian region of Kentucky. That region is sometimes called the cancer capital of America. And sure, that region sees high rates of smoking, of poverty, of exposure to environmental pollutants from coal mining and other industries. There's poor eating habits, but there's also the problem of access to proper health care. And that's sort of the goal of the Appalachian Career Training and Oncology Program. It's to work with these young people from the region in providing education and training in the health sciences to enhance their preparation for oncology-related careers and to involve these students with community outreach experiences. So the UK Action Program takes 25 high school and college students from the eastern parts of Kentucky and provides them with two years of summer experiences in the classroom, in research labs, in oncology clinics, as a way of encouraging them to pursue cancer-focused careers. They do job shadowing, they learn about bioethics, and they get hands-on experience working with different professionals in a variety of fields, but all related to cancer somehow or another. Public health, biopsychology, bioinformatics and coding, biochemistry, molecular biology, pathology, and patient care. Well, it was just recently in April of 2020 that this group actually published their own book. The book is called The Cancer Crisis in Appalachia, Kentucky Students Take Action. And basically, it consists of 25 essays written by these students in the action program. The authors write about their personal experiences with cancer. They discuss why they believe cancer rates are so high in Appalachia and what they think could be done to lower cancer rates in that area. Well, today we're lucky enough to hear one of these action students read their essay. It's Kaylee Collett. This is Tom Martin with another in our series of podcasts featuring some of the contributors to a book of essays about cancer in the Appalachian region of the Commonwealth. Kentucky ranks first in the nation for overall rates of cancer incidence and mortality, 26,000 new cases of cancer, and more than 10,000 deaths each year. This podcast series brings you from page to ear the voices of the cancer crisis in Appalachia, Kentucky Students Take Action. Edited by Nathan Vanderford, Lauren Hudson, and Chris Pritchard, the essays are by 20 high school and five undergraduate students, all residents of Kentucky's Appalachian region, who are participants in the University of Kentucky's Markey Cancer Center Appalachian Career Training in Oncology, or ACTION, program. And they aspire to careers in the field of oncology, hoping to combat a disease that has ravaged their homes and communities. My name is Kaylee Collett. I was born on October 17, 1997, at the Mary Breckenridge Hospital in the mountains of Appalachia in Hiding, Kentucky. Kaylee Collett played basketball, softball, and volleyball at Leslie County High School, valedictorian of her senior class. Today, Kaylee is a third-year pre-medicine biology major at the University of Kentucky, and she is a member of the Action Program. 
Her essay, Wilted by Geography, tells us why. Growing up, I stayed with my mamma and papa, Irene and Odell Brock, while my mom worked. Mamma had short, voluminous brown hair that always lay perfectly around her glass-framed, icy blue eyes and full-blush cheeks. Her voice was smooth and calming, like the complete silence that caresses your ears in the peace of your bedroom after hours of ear-wrenching noise. She was soft-spoken and mild-mannered, and her laugh was like the soft giggle of a small schoolgirl up to no good. Papa had dark skin and hair, like his Native American ancestors who came before him, accompanied by stunning blue eyes and a smile that was contagious. He loved to dance, sing, and play, while Mamma shook her head and occasionally cracked a smile. Kaylee's grandfather taught her how to whistle like birds, catch tadpoles in the creek, change gears on a stick shift. While Mamma taught me to read words from a random list she made on her 8x3 notepad, to write in cursive, and to play the piano. Kaylee's grandmother was always there when she stepped off the school bus, waiting to hear all about her school day as they made the seven-minute walk up the gravel driveway. And she knew that every day she had a graded quiz awaiting her when we walked through the kitchen door. I quizzed her on everything I learned that day, from the biology in Miss Nikki's class to the state symbols in Miss Chris's class. She learned as much as I did that year and loved every minute of it. It's safe to say that for Kaylee... Life was great at Mamaw and Papaw's. But something sinister was lurking in the shadows, and it soon became evident. Kaylee's beloved grandmother was suffering. It was lung cancer. When I told her that I was going to be valedictorian, she, of course, was having a really hard time already with her treatment. So she was very sick almost constantly. But when I told her that I was going to be valedictorian, she was so happy that that laugh just came back into her face. She smiled so big, and she was so happy to hear it. And she teared up a little. And I hadn't even seen her tear up through her treatments because she was such a strong woman. Graduation was coming soon. Getting to see Kaylee serve as valedictorian with the highest honors was a grandmother's dream. She worked so hard and invested so much into me, and she was the reason that I was able to do that. But as too often the case for many in eastern Kentucky, cancer had the upper hand. Kaylee's grandmother lost her battle with the disease only two weeks before graduation. That was really, really hard for me. And for Kaylee, it was the beginning of a journey. You are listening to Bench Talk, the Weekend Science. This is your friendly community radio station here in Louisville, Kentucky. It's Forward Radio, 106.5 FM. Today we're hearing an interview with Kaylee Callett, a student in a training program at the University of Kentucky called ACTION. It's the Appalachian Career Training and Oncology Program. Let's get back to it.
I grew up for 19 years living in Appalachia in Hodden, Kentucky. And I never knew that we were so much worse off with cancer and other diseases until I moved two and a half hours away to the University of Kentucky. Kaylee heard about the Action Program. It sounded like a way to honor her grandparents and to make a difference back home in Leslie County. I learned there in the Action Program and in sociology class about the terrible cancer rates that we have, some of the worst cancer rates in the nation. It's one thing to discover that you come from the cancer hotspot for the entire United States. But then, if you're Kaylee College, you begin to find out why. The mountainous, remote geography that make travel and transportation always a challenge in Leslie County and for the people of much of eastern Kentucky. I've absolutely seen that. Even in my own family, I've had family members miss appointments, whether it be to see a cardiologist or a neurologist because they may not only have the gas money or the time to get off work or something like that, but they may not even have their own car. Like someone else has to take them and drop them. So they also don't want to burden that person. But I believe that if things were closer, I absolutely believe that all Appalachians would get the necessary screenings and they would follow up much better with treatment. But when you have to travel two and a half hours one way, it's such a burden financially. My mamaw, she couldn't afford to stay anywhere in Lexington. So they often drove three times a week to Lexington. So they were on the road at least 15 hours a week just for treatment. So the alternative for many is to place their lives in the hands of traditional healers and faith. If you were to go to the dollar store and talk about symptoms you have, They'll say, oh, well, I have a remedy for that that my grandma taught me. You just buy this and this and mix it together or something like that. Or they'll say, you can go get a leaf off this tree or this root or something like that to help with your symptoms. So it's definitely very prominent. It's mostly in religion. A lot of people, this plays into the fatalistic mindset, but people here are super religious and they believe that if God has determined that it's their time to go, then it's their time to go and there's not much they can do about it. But as far as traditional healing, they believe that they can just pray and God can heal them. Appalachian culture is complex and complicated. Kaylee understands this. She understands why it can be so difficult for medical professionals who are not from the region to win the trust of Appalachians. The trust and mistrust in Appalachia I would say that that's probably the greatest downfall of our culture is super nice people, amazing people, but it is hard for Appalachians to trust people who are not native because we we're very friendly people and we smile when we talk and we talk to each other as if everyone is family. But when other people from other cultures come and that's not their cultural norm, so they don't behave in the same way that we do, they may speak a little more abruptly. They may be more matter of fact. It's hard for Appalachians to receive that because they may seem like they're rude to them or like they're being demeaning to them in a way. And also there's a lot of mistrust with, oh, they're trying to take my money. They want me to come in for this extra appointment and for this extra scan so they can take my money. They're just trying to make money off of me. That's one that I've heard very frequently from my own family. 
This realization comes from her travels with the Shoulder to Shoulder Program. It's a University of Kentucky Global Health Initiatives organization that integrates academic and community partners to improve the health and well-being of an underserved community in Santo Domingo, Ecuador. It's very hard to understand how complex it is because even growing up here, while I was writing this essay and brainstorming about what I thought was causing cancer, you can make a list, but once you start brainstorming, there are just so many things that pile up and it's all interconnected. It's a giant web of factors. So it's definitely hard for someone who is not native to Appalachia to understand those. In order to treat someone from here, you have to understand that they possibly will be a smoker. They may work in the mines and breathe in coal dust. You can tell them to stop doing those things, but it is ingrained in their culture. If you tell a miner to stop working, then that person may lose everything they have and not be able to support their family. And then that plays into economics because then they can't afford treatment, they can't afford their health care. So it's similar to if you were to go to Ecuador and say there's a patient with severe back problems. You can't tell him to stop working in construction or doing manual labor because that's his way of life. And then there's this, something Kaylee learned in her sociology classes, something called the man box. A box constructed by society that tells a man how he can behave and how he can react to certain things. What Kaylee was discovering is a legacy of life in the mountains and hollers of eastern Kentucky. The man box is often that the man has to be tough, he can't cry, he has basically no feelings besides anger and aggression. In eastern Kentucky, it's very much an issue, not only with men, but also with everyone else. You're taught that you need to be really tough. If you have some kind of symptom, you have to wait it out and see if it improves. Then if it's blood or tears, then you can go to the doctor. But otherwise, you have to just tough it out. But it's especially true for men because they're taught that they have to be the strong ones for the family and everyone else. And not only is this bad for screenings for cancer and getting symptoms checked out for a cancer diagnosis, it's also bad for men who are grieving who have lost a loved one to cancer because mental health is just as much of an issue as physical health is. And for those who are not grieving properly, it can definitely take a toll. So like her friends and colleagues in the action program, Kaylee Collett feels a call to action. We need Leslie Countyans to help Leslie County. And she intends to be one of those Leslie Countyans who got the education, the know-how, and brought it home. I plan to become an oncologist and, yes, to return home to Appalachia. Kaylee Collett was born in the local hospital in Hyden, named for Mary C. Breckenridge. She was the granddaughter of John Carson Breckenridge, the vice president of the United States. And she could have lived a very comfortable life having everything she needed already. She didn't really have to do anything else to just live comfortably. But instead, she was inspired to make a difference in the world and to pave her own path to greatness. And she ended up being in France and all over the country working in clinics to improve healthcare there. Throughout her whole journey, she ended up coming back to Hodden, Kentucky, of all places. She was drawn here. And the trails here, basically we had creeks and trails through the mountains. And she took it upon herself to ride horseback through these mountains to help women deliver babies. 
and through doing this, she also established the Frontier Nursing University, as well as several clinics and the first hospital here. And that just greatly improved the maternal death rates and the infant mortality rates in Leslie County. She was a pioneer in healthcare here, so I believe that I can also follow her path and improve cancer rates here. Leslie County, help is coming, and it's coming from an inspired young woman who grew up among you. Following the path of Mary Breckenridge, I would like to return home and ease the cancer burden in Leslie County by improving health literacy, by creating outreach programs, and by treating each patient as I would have treated my own grandmother. Kaylee Collett of Hyden, Kentucky. Find her essay, Wilted by Geography, among the 25 featured in the book The Cancer Crisis in Appalachia, Kentucky Students Take Action. It's available on Amazon.com. I'm Tom Martin. Thanks for listening. From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Maybe only Santa's reindeer can fly, but regular reindeer come pretty close. They can fly over the tundra at 50 miles an hour, covering more than 20 miles a day. Their annual migrations span 3,000 miles, the longest of any land animal, and they're spectacularly adapted for that life. Their eyes change color depending on the season. In their summer above the Arctic Circle, with nearly 24 hours of sun, their eyes turn gold to reflect the harsh light. In the dark months of winter, their eyes turn blue to let in as much light as possible. Their eyes can also see ultraviolet light. This makes the snow even brighter, but against it, some important things appear black. The fur of predators, who might otherwise be camouflaged, and lichen, the reindeer's primary winter food. What their eyes can't see is red. Like many mammals, they're red-green colorblind. Both colors appear brown. While this would have made it hard to follow Rudolph's nose, their noses are pretty amazing in their own right. They're lined with capillaries to warm the frigid air before it enters their lungs. They're also the only deer species where both males and females grow full antlers. The males drop off after mating season ends in November, but the females stay on through winter into the spring calving season. This means that if Santa's reindeer do in fact have antlers on Christmas Eve, they're all females. I'm Scott Tinker. <laughs> Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger. You can hear more Earth Date stories at earthdate.org. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. 
If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you. <laughs>